Creature Cast, a darkly tinted look at the magical, the mysterious, and the macabre. You're listening to CreatureCast, darkly to look at the magical, the mysterious, and the macabre. I don't know why I keep reintroducing it after Kwame does such a beautiful job in the intro, but I do it anyway just because I like to, you know, it's it's like stretching before you take your Tai Bo class, so I, you know, get these conversation muscles in here. Anyway, uh, welcome back to our show. Thank you all for joining us so much. I hope you enjoyed our last episode with um, Crimson Peak uh, with uh, our previous guest, Robin, our new guest, Becky. We're actually bringing back a former guest one more time. Woo! Uh, David, how you doing? How, how you doing? How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm doing good. Yeah, he's got a baby in there in the room, and she's sleep. He's sleeping, so we're gonna be very very calm this episode. Uh, but we actually, I'm bringing David on because he and I both share a tremendous passion for the creator uh, that we're gonna be talking about today, which is comic writer Alan Moore. Woo! Woo! So um, I kind of want to start this off first. First off, like if you're a comic book fan, uh, you know, like especially if you go into the, the fairly even the moderate cuts of this stuff, you know Alan Moore. Alan Moore has sort of towered over modern comic book writing for the last what twenty thirty years now twenty years. How long? Like God, since uh, since the eighties at least, I think. Which is God damn! It's about thirty years. So fuck, we're we're getting everything's getting old. Um, he's said that the entire modern comic industry seems like they're all reacting to kind of a bad trip that he had for a few years. Um, but he 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 is what people think of when they think of kind of literary comic book creation, and he's also a really successful um, horror creator. I mean, he was doing meta horror years before you know anybody else really thought about it like his some of the work that we're going to discuss really deconstructed a lot of the tropes that at this point are so hidebound and present that they're just permanently synonymous with the horror genre so i kind of want to kick it off um i i chose you david because you are a huge alan moore fan you're you're the guy i would go you know him not just for his work but for his kind of persona his beliefs his you know you've read his interviews you kind of you you actually run a um a blog where you spot the references to his current, in, with that or within his current comic book work. So uh, let's start us off with the classic. How did you get introduced to Alan Moore? Uh, I think it was the same way a lot of people probably got introduced to him. Uh, I was in college and uh, someone somewhere passed me a copy of Watchmen. I was, I, I'd actually only recently started reading American comics. I was pretty much an anime only guy before that. Uh, I thought superhero comics were dumb. Uh, but, you know, I, I really always liked the MTV aesthetic uh, with a lot of their, you know, like, uh, was that Sam Keith uh, inspired one? I'm forgetting. With the Max, the Max. Yes, I love the Max. So you know, I, you know, and Sandman seems similar to that. So I picked up Sandman. Absolutely loved it. You know, I was interested in other things. Uh, so somebody passed me Watchmen. Uh, I enjoyed Watchmen. Uh, you know, there, it was it was pretty fascinating to read, but it didn't really blow me away. Uh, and then I picked up From Hell. And I was absolutely fascinated and blown away uh, and really into that. And my library, the library at my college coincidentally had a whole bunch of Alan Moore comics. They had Promethea. They had Top Ten. Uh, they had a bunch of other stuff. They had League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So I just read through a lot of that stuff and really became fascinated with a lot of his output, um, especially with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen at the time. Um 
so it just kind of went from there. I read, you know, Tom Strong. Uh, I knew he was kind of a go-to name who had a lot of interesting ideas, especially with a lot of metafictional elements, which I was getting uh, pretty fascinated with at the time. You know, I thought he took a lot of stuff like just deconstructing tropes, but did it in a much more clever and inventive way than a lot of other people were doing. So I just really got into that. And, uh, you know, over the years, I started reading more of his stuff. I read his novel, Voice of the Fire, became blown away by, you know, what a fantastic prose writer he was as well. Um, I got into, uh, I, I even listened to some of his performance art stuff and that was pretty interesting too. So, you know, eventually I just, uh, started following his career and just picking up as much of his stuff as I could. Um, I sort of, you know, I really like Almore's stuff. I read as much of it as I can. Um, I, I haven't gone as deep cuts as you have. My introduction to Alamore was like a little sporadic in that, um, when I was very, very little, like when I was in, I guess, junior high, uh, I had a prof- I had a teacher at my um, middle school that uh, he knew that I was into comic books. I was the only kid that was really like I was reading the X, like it was the '90s, and I was reading like the X Men stuff. Um, he loaned me the Eastman and Laird Ninja Turtle comics, <laughs> and yeah, like the classic sort of scabby underground, like rough hewn, violent stories. And he also loaned me a. Uh, Batman the Killing Joke. And I think that was one of those books that really reprogrammed my brain. Now, Alan Moore himself is sort of, you know, he goes back and forth on it. He disavows. He's like classic cranky old man. He's disavowed it. He said it wasn't really a big deal. But for me, um, that killing, the, the story of the Killing Joke, which is one of his more famous works, um, really defined in a very permanent way the relationship between Batman and the Joker. Um, we get a sense of who the Joker was before he was a criminal, psycho, whatever, and we get a sense of Batman's sort of frustration with the dynamic of their relationship, because I think a lot of really intelligent writers, you know, the Alamores, the Garth Ennises, they tend to get frustrated with the formulaic nature of Western superhero books, because Batman, you know, the Joker will break out, Joker will do something terrible, Batman will ca- will either capture him or the Joker will fall to his vaguely defined death. Or he'll go back to Arkham and the whole thing begins anon. Like, there's no con- continuation. These characters exist in a sort of static loop. And um, and in The Killing Joke, they question both the nature of that stasis and they also question, like, m- like the nature of the relationship between Batman and the Joker. What what And, and it turns into kind of a study of tragedy. And, uh, I, you know, I was like 12, 13 years old. I just knew it was a really killer batman story that was more that was doing that was playing at a higher level than most batman writers were doing and more to the point like like i didn't really know who alan moore was at the time i wasn't really you know, i was a kid i wasn't really following creators that weren't like rob liefeld or whatever but um i i always came back to that to that series and then later on people would always say oh if you're gonna be into comics and you kind of want to up your game you got to check out Watchmen, you got to check out this you got to check out that and as they start you know there came a point where i stopped following and I think this is not uncommon with a lot of people. I stopped following like characters, and I started following creative teams. I'd follow a specific writer around, or I'd follow a specific sort of perspective or point of view. And I tend to sort of justify the way superhero books work, is I assume that every new creative team is a specific iteration of a classic character. Like Frank Miller's Daredevil is not Brian Michael Bendis' Daredevil. It's not, um, God, who's the current guy, Mike something. But like they're, every single one is a... Or, is it Mark Wade? Mark Wade, thank you. Um, 
So every single one of them is a specific iteration that sort of draws on the past of the character, but is totally a new interpretation of it. And uh, I think that Alan Moore really woke me up to what superhero comics could be. And the Watch, the you know, Watchmen storyline, I think, um, kind of changed my changed my perspective on how good comics are. Because, like, you know, there's like we are culturally sort of like dismissive of a lot of pulp entertainment and a lot of pulp entertainment it's not really ambitious like a lot of superhero fight books are just trying to be superhero fight books and some of them are written by written and created by really talented people that do a really talent like skilled balanced nuanced fight story mm-hmm. but you know it's you know i was i was listening to kind of Siskel and Ebert's 1983 review of um, return of the jedi and they say you know it's aiming low, but it hits the mark and it does it brilliantly. And the thing about Alan Moore is that he was always he always seemed to be aiming high, and that I think sort of um, created a lot of tension for him in the system. And actually, we didn't write this in our kind of show maps, but I but you know this better than I do. Can you talk about the tension with Alan Moore and the sort of comic industry that he had, like his sort of contentious relationship with the big publishers, or just the sense you get of him as a creator and the way his work has sort of been accepted or kind of brought into comic book culture which is a very specific thread of nerd pop culture enthusiasm and and fandom all right well i mean there's there's a lot there i mean there's both his relationship with the industry which has been tempestuous um to say the least especially in later years i think he's pretty much disowned everything he did with dc um that might be kind of uh just out of spite mostly i don't know if he really means it but he uh He's pretty much said, you know, screw everything I did with Vertigo and DC and all those guys. Uh, only the new stuff matters. So I think there was a, a he, he feels like he was really sorely mistreated. Yeah, and, and this has come down to even the film adaptions, which he could have stood to make millions of dollars off of. Like his sort of, I would say, curmudgeonly stoic integrity like you almost never see like the only other guy I can ever think of that ever did anything like that was Bill Watterson refusing to license Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, I mean, I don't really agree with a lot of Moore's positions, but I mean, he really does stick with them. He you'll notice in a lot of his uh post V for Vendetta or I mean even v, counting V for Vendetta, I think movies his name is not credited. And he specifically requested that his name be removed and that all money that would have gone to him will go to the the uh person who drew the original comics, which is Really, I mean, that's, I mean, say what you will about his position or whether you disagree or agree with him. That is, that takes a lot of spine. He turned down a lot of money with money with those decisions. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, to say the least, in in terms of his relationship with the industry is it's been a a rough one. But um, in terms of his impact on the industry, it's, it's also been pretty interesting. I mean, he did a lot of stuff to not just inject adult ideas into comics like you know deconstructing tropes or exploring more literary themes uh he also brought in a lot of sex and violence uh and in a lot of ways i think he became disappointed with the impact this had on comics later on i i agree with him very strongly there is that you know it just became the thing to add like rape or horrific mutilation or whatever to comics to make it seem more edgy and adult and uh, you know that that was something he definitely brought in, and I think it's 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 not been a good impact on comics. Which you know I love comics, I love superheroes, but ultimately there were entertainments intended for children when they were created, and yeah, they can surpass that. But 
it's kind of in their DNA. And uh, no matter how many adults enjoy them, I think they ultimately should be for kids. And if you add a lot of stuff like that, it's just like, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's a little much, in my opinion. Yeah, um, you know, it, it's weird because Alan Moore, in a lot of ways, sort of like the reaction to he, he's part of a specific generation of comic creators, and he's usually attached to uh, guys like Frank Miller. And they did these sort of very dark, like the big books that sort of defined the early 80s were uh, Dark Knight Returns mm-hmm. uh, by Frank Miller and Watchmen by Alan Moore. And both of those books are very violent, nihilistic takes on superhero formulas. Um, you know, they have these characters that are sort of going through this like morally ambivalent, morally ambiguous sort of neo-noir landscape where the stakes are like, you know, it's set against backdrop of 1980s Reaganomic nuclear Cold War destruction. So everything is sort of very high drama, very advanced. People are, you know, like, I, I so uh, one of those things that kind of comes, it, it led to what comic fans call the Iron Age, where characters got darker and grittier and more bloody as, a, as a, an interpretation of what the term mature means. And the thing about that is that, um, you know, Alan Moore said that, like, people took the wrong lessons from that. Like, they just thought that all you had to do to be more mature is have your scantily clad, you know, boob warrior ninja slash a bunch of people to death in bloody, gory detail. And um, I think that, you know, there, there's, there like, the the work that Alan Moore did is phenomenal. Like, he is possibly, I, I think we could probably say he's the best writer comics have ever had. Um, like he is the Titan, you know, for better or worse, he's the Titan that everyone's like is under everyone's shadow. But, um, people like his, like a lot of his audience sort of misinterpreted what he was trying to do, or they didn't like, they took the violence without the context or the meaning. And they sort of like put it into, uh, like they just, they brought the titillation elements in it without the art. So it's just like titillation. And it's not particularly mature. It's just sort of like exploit it, exploit. It's like telling and making an exploitation film or pretending that it's like Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. which is uh. So um, now this is we're we're because we are a horror podcast because this is the darkly tinted look at the magical, the mysterious, and the macabre. Um, we're not going to focus on the entire body of his work, um, which is ridiculously massive. Yeah, which would be just a ridiculous undertaking. That said, uh, we do have to talk about sort of just touch on briefly. Sort of what the one graphic novel he's most known for, which is uh, Watchmen, which was something like a 12-issue series. I forgot what it was, eventually collected. Um, It was supposed to be only in print for so long, and then Al Moore would get the rights for it. But it did so well, and it was such a seminal work that DC just kept renewing it. And it's been in print pretty much continuously forever. Um, You want to talk a little bit about Watchmen? Like, what's what? Like, I mean, at this point, if they're listening to it, you probably know Watchmen. But sort of your relationship with Watchmen or what you kind of think of it or how it's sort of impacted your sense of who Alan Moore is because it is it is his defining work yeah uh Watchmen I mean it, originally he was going to take actual comics characters I think it were the, the timely comics characters uh, from the timely line and uh do kind of this darker more realistic take on them but essentially Watchmen is basically yeah it was sort of like he did something similar with that old Marvel Miracle Man character right like he used a real character and like fleshed it out and made it more adult saw it through with an adult eye yeah exactly uh so watchmen was basically what would it be like if you had if actual people dressed up like superheroes and went out doing superhero things actual people with all their neuroses and uh issues and politics 
And, uh, I mean, he basically figured that the sort of person who would become a superhero would be, you know, just a bunch of crazy motherfuckers or people with things severely wrong with their lives that they were trying to fill. So, you know, it was this very gritty, real take. Gritty not just in the, you know, violence and blood and, and you know, hard choices kind of thing, but, you know, gritty also in the sense that these people had real problems and uh, were complex and... Uh, and all that sort of thing. So that was what was really cool about it. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of Dave Gibbons' art, but I think it has a sort of grimy realism to it with, you know, and the costumes don't really always look kind of cool. They look kind of embarrassing. They look like people in spandex, you know, night night owls a little bit overweight. And uh, so that was a lot of what made Watchmen so fascinating, that and kind of the world he built, this world where superheroes exist. And among all these kind of more grounded realistic superheroes who are just basically like random assholes in suits who are being used essentially as government propaganda you have one real superhero uh what's his name uh captain manhattan dr. captain manhattan. dr manhattan who's essentially this guy who has control over things on the molecular level and it's just like you know how that kind of changes things and how horrifying kind of an alien an actual superman would be like you know so again a lot of the theme is he's taking you know He's looking at the world of superheroes and approaching it semi-realistically or at least trying to think about it in real terms and what that would mean in terms of politics and the human race and building a new world, a fictional setting based around these ideas. And that was that was what was really cool about it. And uh, I mean, the other thing that was really cool about it was just uh, and it was a big introduction to me in terms of how medium can affect how a story is told. Because everything about um, Watchmen is micromanaged. Every panel has like something interesting going on in it, or even the arrangements of panels. There's one, uh, there's one uh, issue I think towards the middle called uh, "Deadly Symmetry" or something. It's a reference to the William Blake poem. And if you look at the panels and the colors and the occurrences in the issue, everything is symmetrically organized, creating these X patterns. And it's just like really fascinating to watch and look at. So it even meets in the middle of the issue with one character bashing another character with a pole standing behind like a V pattern or something. So it forms an X, but not perfectly. So, so you're really, you know, it's, and this becomes a metaphor for the idea of justice in the issue. So it was kind of the, my first exposure to this idea that every little piece of a story or a comic or a movie can mean something or can all build to something. And, uh, Alan, you know, Alan Moore's really kind of like the Kubrick of comics. Like he really just micromanages every single thing. And if you look at some of his comic scripts, they're ridiculously in depth, notoriously so apparently in the industry. Yeah. Um, you know, the classic sort of a lot of what people thought of as creating comics was the Marvel method where, a writer would come up with an outline, turn it over to the artist. The artist would lay it out and sort of create room for dialogue. And then the writer would come in and later on fill the dialogue. It's great when you're churning out, you know, when you're a writer responsible for 20 titles. So you could just sort of like do an outline and just plug in stuff as you go. Um, Moore is a meticulous creator and it shows in his work. Like everything is so tightly controlled. And reading his scripts reads like a um, – like a work study in an insane asylum that a patient has to just like do a self-evaluation like it's so meticulous and internal um so yeah i think that's like that's that's pretty much what i want to say about Watchmen. like my reaction was pretty similar it's very 80s it's very sort of cold warish it's very morally ambiguous in that the bad guy like in the in the context of the world the bad guy's the ultimate like uh ozymandias ozymandias, yes. Oz- ozymandias 
is ultimately shown to be in the right. Like, his his actions aren't even that bad. Just in the context of the story, they totally make sense. I, I tend to think they fall apart on close inspection, but whatever. And uh, I do think that the, the, the key change that the movie did... And this always gets me yelled at. The key change in the movie makes more sense than the than the, the, the than its counterpart in the comics, where the whole thing hinges on like a weird alien. And in the movie, everyone believes that Doctor Manhattan went nuts. Anyway, sorry, tangent. That's no, no, the I, Joe I, rant. I actually agree with you. I think the movie's a, an awful piece of crap, but I agree that that change was actually an improvement. I don't know. Yeah, but you you said something that that stuck is that I, I actually like uh, Dave Gibbon, right? Mm-hmm. I, I like his art style because. I think he recalls uh, Denny, o- Denny O'Neill, like the sort of default Batman artist and that sort of square-jawed heroic thing. But then everyone does look schlubby. And that's the thing that always strikes me about like superhero movies is that um, when you get people who are really adamant about like purity to the source material, like kind of more the Joss Whedon, you realize how goofy a lot of superhero costumes look. But then when you see uh, the guys who did Captain America Winter Soldier, where they took the cap outfit but made it look more realistic, you could see that, like, if people really tried to dress like superheroes, they'd, they'd look like idiots. Like, Spider-Man tends to look kind of goofy. Um, but, anyway, okay, yeah, we're falling down the Watchmen hole. Uh, so we want to talk primarily about Alan Moore's horror work, which I would say that a lot, you know, he's, he's one of those guys, like, when we were talking about Sandman together, like... Sandman's a really hard story to pigeon down as pure horror, but there were elements of it that were definitely horror. Alan Moore, when he does horror, it's very clearly meant to be frightening, to be shocking. He actually has a great story about freaking out Neil Gaiman. Um, when he was Neil Gaiman was in the middle of Sandman, Alan Moore was in the middle of From Hell, and he was describing the scene where uh, Sir William Gull, the uh, the Jack the Ripper character was disemboweling his last victim and he was in this sort of hallucinogenic revel and pulling out the woman's entrails and saying you know look look netly uh the cab the the handsome cab driver that was his accomplice like look netly lights and alamore had or uh, neil gaiman had said like he had enough he walked out of the um restaurant and alamore followed him out and said oh you know, Neil Scary Trousers Gaiman can't hack it, you know? And I love that, like, weird, like, there's a lot of those weird little stories about it. But, um, so we're going to focus primarily on, and a lot of his horror stuff is, it's really bookended his career because I would say that the beginning of his career was predominantly horror. The stuff he's done recently is very much horror. And sort of in between, it's been more superhero y. But, um, let's, so let's, let's start the conversation with horror. Now, you said something before we started that I think really struck me, which is that to really understand Alan Moore's take on the horror genre, especially, especially in the last few years, uh, you have to understand his sort of belief system. Uh, would you like to expand on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so this is Moore's self-reported version of events, but he said basically when he hit his 40s, he had a bit of a midlife crisis and decided he was going to become a wizard. Uh, <laughs> so, um, what he meant by that was he essentially converted to a brand of, uh, Aleister Crowley's Thelema. Uh, now I'm sure a lot of Joe's listeners probably already know very well what Thelema is, but for those of you who don't, uh, Aleister Crowley was a, uh, a self-proclaimed, uh, sorcerer, wizard, guru from the, uh, late Victorian period who, um, basically invented this kind of, uh, magic system uh which 
was a little more freeform than things were. I mean, they had all these secret magical clubs and these orders that had, you know, ancient secrets passed down from the Egyptians and all this other garbage. But uh, Crowley's take was kind of like, uh, basically, all magic is the application of your will and your imagination. Your will, in this case, being a more higher form thing, but we don't have to get into that. Basically, like, if you believe in something on some level, it's true. That's that's essentially the gist of it. Um, not 100% accurate, but that's good enough for now. So more um, and more said while he was writing from hell, there's a speech William Gull, Jack the Ripper gives, which is that human beings have always believed in these gods. These gods have affected the things we've done. They, you know, you, God can make you, you know, you, people believe that God told them to shoot up a school or whatever. And if that's the case, then how does that make God any less real? Like you could say God isn't real in the sense he doesn't actually physically exist, but he exists in your head and isn't existing in your head a form of existence himself. So Moore really got into this, this he kind of took this metafictional idea to its most extreme level where he argued that imagination is a thing that actually exists. Gods exist in our imagination, so on some level they actually exist. And he took on as his own deity this um, this ancient Greek god called Glycon. Glycon was a basically a snake with golden hair and a beautiful face. And um, but it was well known. The twist was it was well known that Glycon, even in the old days, even with the ancient Greeks, Glycon was a bullshit god created by this created for a cult, and he was actually literally a sock puppet. Hmm. Like this guy took a kind of like a hose type thing and added a snake skull in the end and then he put hair to hide his hand and then he would just have to move the snake's head and say like oh you should have sex with me and give me your money and then i'll give you endless wealth or tell you the future now bear in mind david is actually doing the <laughs> snake hand right now so that's uh, the just, power of Glycon, yeah. you know? Uh, so, you know, he kind of winkingly took this uh, imaginary god as his patron deity. Anyway, some more really got into this. So he wrote a comic series called Promethea, which uh, is gorgeously illustrated by J.H. Williams. It's one of the most beautifully illustrated comics you'll ever see. But it's essentially more going on and on and on about his new religion through comic books form. And it's just basically the idea that imagination is real and that art can be kind of a mystical exploration of the universe um so you know but uh, a lot of philemma and a lot of magic is big into synchronicities coincidences connections between things that you wouldn't necessarily think of it's like how you can look at a tarot card and suddenly see margaret thatcher dying or something like that you know what i mean just from the symbolism you draw connections between the universe the, between universes and how there are all these little coincidences that seem to pop up. And like, for example, From Hell is this amazing fractal of a comic that shows how basically it seems like almost the entire 21st century spun out of Jack the Ripper and the events surrounding him. So it's just this really fascinating exploration of space and time and how everything is interconnected. But essentially, yeah, Moore had this big breakthrough or just took this artistic position and that colored everything he basically did afterwards. Now, um, David, when we start talking about this stuff, he's more interested in the kind of the occult underpinnings of Alan Moore's work than I am. I'm pretty materialist about this stuff in a lot of ways, and I tend to, you know, when guys like when guys like Moore and especially guys like Grant Morrison, they start talking about this stuff, I sort of say like, look, I've I've been on like hallucinogens myself, and I can kind of see how if you go deep enough, that er like all questions of identity and all questions of matter and material become really fuzzy around the edges. But to me, you know, like 
a sock puppet is a sock puppet, and like high high philosophy is sort of like so that kind of that aspect. Alan Moore has the hard, hardest time or a harder time connecting to than David did, which is sort of why I think that um, this conversation is definitely about the two sort of approaches to Alan Moore. Um, and that doesn't, you know, even if you're struggling, like I often do, with sort of the philosophical and spiritual underpinnings of his work. The fact remains, his work is phenomenal. And I want to start off with um, one of the first things that he did for an American audience, which was then-DC, later Vertigo's Swamp Thing storyline. Now, um, you know, he had to, like a lot of these young, like in the 80s, a lot of these guys that would come over as part of the British invasion, which we had in the 1980s, um, they would start off in DC's sort of smaller runs, like story, like pieces that didn't have or, or, or characters that didn't have the same sort of resonance with mainstream DC fans as Batman and Superman or whatever and they were given to these quirky Brits and they were told like do what you can with them and he took Swamp Thing which is sort of a kind of an odd shuffling character from that that age in the 70s where everyone was trying to make horror superheroes and uh he he was given the character he did a the first issue that Alan Moore has sort of to kind of make his mark, he'd done a couple issues prior to set it up, but the first issue he had to make his mark is this terrifying story called The Anatomy Lesson. Oh, oh. yes. Uh, so, yeah, I've, I've got a lot to say on The Anatomy Lesson, actually. Um, so, first of all, it's just a fantastic comic. Uh, he basically took the character of Swamp Thing and literally, literally and figuratively broke him down and reassembled him and... Well, what's what was the kind of stuff that uh, he tore down? Like, what were the mythologies around the character that he upended? Yeah. So uh, originally, Swamp Thing was this uh, botanist named Alec Holland who was working on some kind of chemical, and then there was some kind of horrible accident, as happens in comics, that turned him into Swamp Thing. Uh, so he was basically this guy trapped in this monster's body who was trying to turn back. And just be a normal guy. But what happened in the anatomy lesson, spoiler, spoiler, is that they discover he, well, basically he gets his he gets killed in the previous issue, or at least you think he's killed. And as they're dissecting the body, these uh, villainous scientists are dissecting the body, they realize that not only is he not dead, but really Alan Ho well, Alec Holland actually died in the explosion. And Swamp Thing is not a person who's been transformed into a swamp monster. He's a swamp monster that thinks it was once a person. Uh, so it's this this distortion of what the character was. Uh, and the anatomy lesson is just if if you're wonder, if you're interested in writing comics, uh, it's just a wonderful comic to look at and break down because it's just um, first of all it's a fantastic horror story. Uh, I did a little experiment with it. I was so fascinated with this comic actually uh, that I I recopied all the text from uh, the anatomy lesson uh, to see if it could stand, you know, all the dialogue, all the narration, all that stuff. And I realized that about 95% of the anatomy lesson works as a short story. Like you can take out the pictures and it's still a fucking gripping yarn. What's interesting is the most climactic moment of the anatomy lesson you need the pictures for, but the rest of the story actually is just fantastic as just a red word piece but yeah no it's um it, you know it's um i think that like the thing that struck me about the anatomy lesson is i wasn't super familiar with swamp thing i i didn't really know the character that well i know he was basically a big shambling mound of moss this sort of like frankensteinian creature that lived on the swamp and had these big sad eyes 
And the the way that the story is structured is that you have basically two characters locked in a research facility. You had, uh, well, three characters. You had um, the kind of arch villain that was running the whole organization that had quote-unquote killed Swamp Thing in the previous issue. You had the scientist that, he, that was studying the corpse and was later sort of rudely dismissed. And then you had Swamp Thing himself. Now, Swamp Thing reanimates because you cannot kill a plant by shooting it in the head looks at the scientist's findings and realizes that this mythology it's a tragic story because like the mythology that the swamp thing had was that it was one it was once Alec Holland and it would could be Alec Holland again if it could figure a way out of its like predicament. And it reads the research and realizes that it's nothing but a bunch of moss and worms that thought that it was once a human being. And the agony that like it's when you look at comics from that vertigo era like comics these days they have this very distinct look like everything is very solid everything is very like the lines are very hard you have a lot of guys that kind of grew up with like manga style art so things have very sort of specific ground like or or they they have this very like attempt to kind of make things as realistic as possible or like have a real fluid sense of or like a strong sense of place and movement uh in this everything almost looks like uh like a Francis Bacon painting. Like you see the characters, but they're sort of melting into the background and into each other. The faces are sort of creepy and distorted. Everything has this sort of like flushed out quality to it. And you realize that the Swamp Thing, once he realizes he was never Alec Holland, that humanity is gone. He has no reason to be anything else than a monster. And suddenly this little old man that has engineered its destruction was this like cackling jerk. You're kind of frightened for him because he's locked in a biodome with this monster that now knows that there's no going back for it. And it turns a hero very briefly into one of the most terrifying creatures I've ever seen in any media, let alone just comic books themselves. So I think that's what sort of stuck. That was like, talk about hitting the ground running so hard with his Swamp Thing run. Now, um, what what else stuck, stuck with you about like the kind of the later Swamp Thing stories that Alan Moore had done? Well, I mean, uh, there's there's just a lot to discuss. I mean, Moore takes a lot of these classic DC characters who have appeared throughout uh, DC Comics over the decades, and he deconstructs them or, or reinvents them in really clever and interesting, darker or just more bizarre ways. Um, he gets really political with a lot of his stories. I mean, sometimes a little uh, over the top and a little preachy but i mean it's still an interesting thing to do especially for the time period uh you know just with this this shambling swamp mound you know how do you make a political story out of that um he uh you know he it's it's just it's just fascinating to read um i think eventually the whole thing led to the creation of vertigo comics itself which is just crazy to think about um but yeah, that's the um, and you know I've I've in our Sandman podcast I kind of bitched about uh, a lot of the art of that era because I, I wasn't a big fan of it. But the the art of Swamp Thing, as you just mentioned, I love the Francis Bacon comparison because it's absolutely true. The the art is gorgeous. Thanks, I'm really cultured. <laughs> I know I know the art. Uh, yeah, no, it's just wonderful, wonderful stuff. Uh, really beautifully done in some places, but also grotesque. It's just it's just fucking great stuff. Well, I think there were a couple of things that kind of struck out with me in terms of narration is that Alan Moore is a guy from what, like Liverpool or Birmingham or something like that? Like he's, he's from Engli- Northampton. North Northampton. He is as fucking English as you can get. Now, I will admit that I'm a like West Coast Californian. I don't really know the bayou. But like 
I get, like, this, you see this a lot with him, and especially with Garth Ennis, who are guys from these sort of, like, very English or, or, or you know, like, European, like, Western European cultures, uh, obviously, Garth Ennis is Irish, um, but they are so, they, they, when you read their biographies, you read their interviews, they travel a lot, they pay attention to the world around them, and they're so good at replicating other cultures, like, I, you know, I'm not a local, so I can't really attest how well um, Alan Moore captured Louisiana, but it feels like Louisiana. It feels like, you know, Bayou Country. It has a sense of the sort of, like, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing is very much a creature of the wild in all the kind of messy and occasionally nasty, parasitic way that it could be. You know, like, the, you know, we get a sense of the heat, the, the, the humidity. We get a sense of the constant cycle of life and decay that that the Swamp Thing is tied into. We get a sense of the language and the history of the South. Like, there's one story that really blew me away where, um, like, and that's the thing that's, like, to me, the thing that struck me about Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run Aside from the Constantine character, which we'll get to later, the thing that struck me about Alamore Swamp Thing run is that um, he was doing meta commentary on horror tropes a long time before anybody else was. Like, like we still think anytime some you know fucking new clever spin on the horror thing, like every time there's a new Cabin in the Woods or whatever comes out, everyone's like, oh wow, this is really saying some deep shit. But like, the thing about vampires and werewolves and shit is that they were corny all the way back then. Like, people were already riffing on that stuff all the way back then, and he always made that really interesting and engaging. Like, he has a story about a werewolf called, I want to say, the Red Tent or the Red Hut or something. It's something along those lines, yeah. Yeah, which is, um, it's very much about sort of women. It, it's werewolf as, as a kind of women's power and, more importantly, women's rage. Like, it ties in the cycles of the moon to the cycles of the period. And it's the kind of story that I recommend to anybody that really loved the film Ginger Snaps, which was tying... Um, werewolfism or lycanthropy to female puberty. Um, you know, he had a character. He does. Uh, he did a vampire story where the vampires were living in this sort of under under like a town that they had previously inhabited had been flooded out. So they were all underwater where they could live indefinitely, and they were like stealing and sucking the blood of people who were passing by. They were swamp leeches. It was such a clever idea, and he even has this great and like comics are so good for just like. You can do stuff like comics are a visual media, but they're not the same as film. They don't have the same limitations as film. Like you have to keep the illusion of movement going, but if you can do that, you can get away with murder. <laughs> and he does an entire serial killer first person story um, where the killer relates to his victims by their number. Like every victim has a number, and he can kind of recall their number and sort of talk a little bit about it in just really like 1980s. Like it's very like horror of the 80s, which was sort of like bleak and heavy metal and splatterpunk and aggressive and he did it so powerfully with the swamp thing is in the core character of the story it's the murderer this guy's called the boogeyman i want to say because neil gamer would later reference it in the serial killer convention that we talked about in the sandman podcast which y'all should listen to um (laughs) but i think those were sort of and, and my favorite one too is you know the south has to deal with sort of the ghosts of slavery and the sort of history of the civil war and kind of the race relations. There's a story where the character, like, it takes place in a uh, southern plantation that's clearly modeled after, you know, speaking as a West Coaster, clearly modeled after the um, Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California. And it's the sound of hammers that'll never stop. It's a it's a plantation that's haunted by the ghosts of the dead, uh, you know, the slaves and the soldiers and stuff like that. And, you know, these uh, people go on to film a horror movie in there, and the really nice, you know, like, it's even, like, kind of a cutting attack on, like, 
like bullshit liberalism where the sort of supposedly nice actor is deep down like the most racist character of all or he slides into the persona of the racist landowner that originally owned the plantation and it was saying some really interesting stuff about southern slavery like the history that they kind of like the way that history kind of constantly comes back and bites him in the ass this is amazing stuff for a guy that wasn't a part of this culture so those were stories that i thought were phenomenal to me but uh david what did you think of them actually uh sorry to be that guy but quick correction you're conflating two different swamp thing stories you're thinking there's the one with the actors in the plantation which is a great one and there's the even better one which is the sound of hammers which is the winchester house where uh the sound of hammers references uh you know it's this house the there the the you know the family got rich off selling these guns mm-hmm. but then they're cursed by all the, the ghosts of the people that uh were killed with their guns and the only way they can get away that curse is get away from that curse is to keep building their house and building their house until it becomes this massive maze so sound of hammers can refer to the sound of the hammer of the gun it can also refer to the sound of hammers constantly building and that's probably my favorite swamp thing story it's just such a great story where it's like you got all you know it talks about gun violence in america it's i guess really topical right now um and it's you know not just uh the civil war but also like you know killing native americans people killing each other and that whole position that the gun holds in american culture it also has a really nice bit about how knocking on wood is considered good luck you know that it summons plant elementals so that's how they get Mm -hmm. swamp thing in the story it's great it's just like even on the smallest detail it's like this this reinvention alan moore's constantly reinventing and finding new connections for things yeah, um, and obviously the other thing that Swamp Thing of that era is known for is being the first appearance of John Constantine, who was um, inspired, I want to say, by Sting, yes. like had a very Sting appearance. Uh, he was also like the first time we see John Constantine, which, by the way, is one of the best names I've ever seen for a character, especially <laughs> in a cult detective. Um, he is he says it. He's a nasty piece of work. Ask anybody. He is really immoral there's not a lot of conscience going on with him but uh, you know he's the force that sort of directs and guides swamp thing both to who he actually is and what his purpose in the world is as a sort of like elemental like a, a an elemental of force like a servant of what they call the green which is the uh kind of the the power of the earth and uh you know he protects it against you know characters like woodrow who think they're representing it but are corrupting it things like that um but uh, we see John Constantine is a really heartless, immoral player who will sacrifice anyone or anything to keep the world safe. And I think that's sort of a fascinating take on the character. Um, anyway, that's so that's kind of the Swamp Thing stories. Uh, they're, they're kind of my favorite Alan Moore horror things. But the next one we want to talk to is another one of his more notorious horror offerings, which is uh, From Hell. Now, when we were kind of kicking this map around, David, you said that uh, From Hell isn't really a horror piece. you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not denying that it has absolutely horrific elements to it. There's uh, it being the story of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, I mean, you can't get a, you can't get away from that. It's you know one of the most horrific stories in human history. Um, you know, and there there are certain issues in certain parts of the story that are just difficult to read because they're so fucked up and horrifying. But I mean, I, I don't know. Um, to me, it just doesn't say horror. It says more of a kind of psychogeographic exploration of the 20th century. Uh, and the primary emotion isn't so much fear or disturbance. It's just kind of, you know, a, a thesis about uh, things. More described it as kind of, you know, his description of it was, uh, 
you know, if you want to understand a murder mystery, you have to understand the society that it comes out of. And I, I, I love that, that sentiment, actually. I, I mean, I'm not a mystery writer. I'm not even a mystery fan. But I think one of the most fundamental forms of fiction is the murder mystery. If that makes any sense, I mean, it's I mean, it's like why would you have a situation where one human being takes another human being's life, and you explore why that would happen and what that means, and I think I think that's really the most elemental story there is, and I think Moore takes that and he blows it up on the on the social level, on the level of society and technology and all these and history and the individual and spirituality, and it's just. It's just one of the most comprehensive books I've ever read, uh, and I, I just fucking love it. It's like a fractal of a comic that just keeps expanding and expanding. Yeah, I'm kind of like one of the interesting. Like, there are a couple of ways that I approach Alan Moore. Like, I, first off, I you know I'm loosely fascinated with Jack the Ripper, like a lot of people are, and um, in, I, I think that's what drew me to the book is that it was supposed to be an in depth exploration of. Jack the Ripper, and it's, for me, first off, I, I do like mysteries. I'm a big fan of them. Um, I like the fact that it is so meticulously researched. Like, pant, like I don't read that book itself. I read it and its footnotes with every single panel. Like, you can go, you, I would read a page or read a panel, I'd go into the back and they say, oh yeah, this is, uh, you know, documented from the actual conversation the police detectives had with this guy, or this is an actual piece of evidence that got, you know, this is a witness, that got logged in the catalog, this is an actual witness that was walking by at the time. It's such a beautiful recreation of what had happened. It's like, honestly, it's like the fucking comic book version of an, of a, like a, like the serial podcast, where it's so granular in the events surrounding Jack the Ripper that I kind of feel like every year some asshole with the, like, chemistry set says, oh, I've got DNA evidence, figure out Jack the Ripper's, and it's all bullshit. Like, Jack the Ripper, as Alan Moore explains, is superposition. You can get close and close, you could fractalize the ideas behind him, but ultimately it's an, it's an impenetrable mystery just because it's been dead and, like, Everyone's been dead and gone too long, and the mystery is sort of the appeal. But for me, aside from the fact that it's it's such a um, terrifying work of vicious purposefulness, like like the the conspiracy, it's that kind of like oh, the all the killer, all the victims that of Jack the Ripper had ties to a conspiracy to keep a royal heir to the throne under wraps, and Queen Victoria herself ordered the assassinations. Uh, obviously, this doesn't this doesn't stand up under any real scrutiny but it's a great story it's also that kind of like like british writers of that era are very punk rock against the monarchy like every single one of them has that sort of like cheap shot against the crown kind of thing but i think for me there's this line where we meet the kid who would later the man who would later become jack the ripper a uh child named william whitey gull and we meet him his father's a steamship driver um, and he says that, you know, as, as we are watching the child from his father's perspective, the child is looking out at the water, you know, and he says that he wants to work in something salt and old. And it sounds initially like he's talking about the ocean, but he's also talking about blood. He wants to work in blood. And there's this sort of horrible purposefulness. Like, Jack the Ripper, the man himself, he took the cause of uh, Queen Victoria to silence this, like, sordid little conspiracy. And it's very sordid. Like, there's a lot of sex in the book, but it's sort of this grubby, pragmatic Victorian kind of sex that it's just gross. Like, it's 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 just gross. Yeah. And um, he takes from that an understanding of the sort of, like, 
occult and mythical traditions of London. That I read, you know, I visited London after I read the book, and you see the White Chapel and you see the obelisks that stand all over the place. And White Chapel, the description of White Chapel itself, how it's designed to loom over the viewer in this sort of like intimidating way, it nails what it is. Like, there's something to like. Again, I'm not usually the guy to go to for like the more esoteric stuff. I think the world is what it is. But when you see things through, like I think that From Hell does more than anything else brings you into Alan Moore's point of view. You he maps out London as a series of occult positions and powers and ley lines and things like that, and how a man cognizant of these things and willing to make the sacrifices of flesh to. Uh, sort of empower the future can step inside and see the sort of horror that will become the 20th century and the book ends with someone with uh, the investigator and the psychic both of whom were sort of like shunted along after the case and sort of like pensioned off basically uh, this after world war one and they realized that the mat the cities like the the factories of massacre are going to continue there's going to be another war and if if the 21st century is a gallows ship of atrocity, then Jack the Ripper and his crimes and his victims are the masthead that sort of lead it. Uh, yeah, you think? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's this this just absolutely fascinating segment towards the end where Jack the Ripper's spirit travels through time and space, and he kind of intersects with all these serial killings and horrible acts and all these other things that that happen after him and even before him and. It's just no, yeah, no. It's uh, it's it's funny because it's a massive, massive comic book, but there's just even more within the pages. You know, it's it's. Uh, I mean, a lot of people think Watchmen is uh, Moore's masterpiece. I actually think From Hell is. I just think there's so much there that he put in, uh, and Eddie Campbell's art is just. Uh, you know, it's this scratchy black. Uh, you know, almost like assault on the page. That's absolutely wonderful with all these reconstructions of Victorian England, and it's just, it's just a phenomenal work. And uh, if you like good comics, you, you got to read From Hell. They did a movie version, but the, there's, it's pretty much, it's unadaptable. Mm-hmm. Like Joe says, like you have to read the, like the notes. You know, that's half the fun. Well, I think the movie version failed because um, it only cared about the like. And it's the problem with movies to books is that like movies are always about the engine of plot and books can always be about the internal life of a thing. And without the internal life of Gull and his like occult fixation, it's just like, why is this guy killing people? Oh, he's killing people because they, you watched the prince get married to a prostitute or like to a poor woman, who cares? Um, or a Catholic rather, that was the hook. <laughs> anyway, uh, there are a lot of other Alan Moore kind of classics like, um, uh, what do you call it? V for Vendetta and the whole anonymous thing, but that's for a different podcast. Uh, the next thing I want to talk to is, is we're going to kind of move into the more modern era of Alan Moore and his sort of study of the work of H.P. Lovecraft. Now, um, David, you were on the show previously for our Lovecraft podcast. Yep. And, uh, you know, we've talked about both of us as writers and sort of fans of the genre in its entirety, like not just the movie, like horror movies, but like comics and games and, and, and novels and like the macabre and all this stuff. Um, you actually have been doing something that's really interesting. So Alan Moore, one of his other things that he's famous for is the books, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which we'll touch on later because it goes back to his kind of Aleister Crowley thing. But, um, 
His books, if nothing else, they're this sort of geek orgasm of references to the entirety of pop literature. And uh, you've been studying the pop references or the Lovecraft-specific references in uh, in his new series, Providence. Why the fuck are you doing this? Well, I mean, A, because uh, I'm a huge nerd. Well, that, I, honestly, that's basically the reason. I'm a huge nerd. That's it. Um, but also, like, you know, like as, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, uh, Alan Moore's Details Fanatic. And I kind of felt like uh, it would be fun as this series is coming out to really kind of break it apart and look at what he's doing and look at, uh, you know, his references and what he's doing in each panel as it's happening. Uh, I feel like if the whole thing came out at once, I wouldn't be able to have the energy to do it. But issue by issue, it's kind of fun. Um, and, you know, as, as we discussed in my last the last podcast, I'm a huge Lovecraft nerd. So, uh, you know, I wanted to see how he's referencing Lovecraft and what he's doing with Lovecraft. Uh, you know, I read a lot of his uh, interviews and uh, talks he gave before uh, reading the comic about writing this comic and there's a lot of interesting stuff a lot of stuff that resounded with me like well actually that's what i want to because i'm leaning on you for this because you're the alan moore guy how do alan moore and lovecraft dovetail into each other well they have a lot in common as people to begin with which is kind of funny um they they're both high school dropouts uh who wound up being incredible autodidacts i mean they just read voracious amounts of material. Apparently, Alan Moore basically never fucking uses the internet. And yet, he's got 8 million references to everything in, like, every panel of what he's done. Like, I can't even begin to imagine what was involved in putting together the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen without the internet, because... That's just nutty. Um, they're both... They both have... They were both politically radical. They both have, uh, rather unconventional spiritual views though in radically different directions more is kind of i believe in everything and lovecraft was very materialistic well do you think like i i guess i kind of want to when you're it's always interesting when storytellers espouse their faith because mm-hmm. you know a storyteller will understand the power of narrative and the construction of myth cycles does alan moore underneath it all not believe in this shit like he reckon you know he's he's his core god is like this bullshit snake puppet, and he says like like it's. I've always got the sense that there's a weak and a nudge to it. Like, does he actually? It seems like he believes in the idea of story more than anything else. Well, um, no, I don't. See, the thing is, that's a complicated issue. Uh, I think he believes that. St- I don't want to do like the cheesy Neil Gaiman thing and say, "Oh, stories are more real than." <laughs> than we are but i think in a sense that is what he's saying um or at least that they're so interconnected our perception of the world like i mean think about the way you think about the world and the way you live your life you construct a story sure like you can you're you're like i'm joe i'm this guy you know this and this happened to me when i was a kid uh and i live in 21st century america and each of these things are different stories you're taking none of them are actually the reality, because the reality is so complex, your mind really can't grasp it. All your brain puts things into a story, and um, you know that's what storytellers do: is they harness that, they harness this perception of the world to build things, hopefully bigger than the individual you or me. And I think Moore believes he's tapping into these kind of Platonic forms, possibly, or these thought forms. These, you know, like I would almost reference the uh, the South Park episodes about imagination land. <laughs> kind of as, but you know what I mean. It's like um, it's this idea that our imagination, even if it is imaginary, is a real thing. You know what I mean? 
Like, I'm imagining a frog in a tutu. Like, there is no frog in a tutu, but my thoughts about a frog in a tutu actually exist. Like, you can't, you can't prove that, but I know that because I'm imagining it, and it wouldn't exist if it wasn't there. Does that make sense to a certain degree? Like, within... It's like... You read Lord of the Rings, right? Sure. And you, you imagine Frodo. I can reference Frodo. So Frodo exists on some level. It's a conceptual level, but it exists. I mean, I have that, like, Batman yeah. Batman feels incredibly real to me, and Batman has right. never existed. Batman is a collection of lines on paper or a guy in a suit with nipples on it, you know? Like, so I, I guess I dig it. Okay, well, we're this Tangent City, yeah. USA. Let's get back to... Um, the what he's been doing with his Lovecraft stories. Now, as far as I can tell, he's done three, right? He's done the one with the uh, racist-ass FBI agent. Uh, the, the courtyard. The courtyard. The one with the woman who follows the racist-ass agent who has a really shitty day in a swimming pool, <laughs> Neonomicon. <laughs> and the current one, which is Providence. Oh my God. I, 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 yeah, he did a book called Yugget Cultures, too, but that's like, we'll set that off to that's, the side. That's deep cuts. Yeah, that's yeah. really deep cuts. Um, so I got those three, right? Yeah. Uh, he, al- he also put, made references to Lovecraft creatures in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but that's a, that's a cameo type thing and not really that important. Yeah. Now, um, there is a continuity between all of those stories. Two of them take place in modern time. Providence takes place in, uh, in the past. And, you know, so I guess the first thing that I want to say is, in a lot of ways, I think Alan Moore is sort of the ideal person to carry on Lovecraft's, or the legacy of the Cthulhu mythos, or in Lovecraft terms, Yogg Sothothery. Mm-hmm. Um, we all, like, ever since Lovecraft really blew, like, Lovecraft was big, like, he started coming back in the 60s with the Arkham House Publishing. In the 80s, all of us D&D nerds were playing Call of Cthulhu, 80s and 90s. Call of Cthulhu, and from the gamer circle, it sort of spread out into sort of mainstream, quote-unquote mainstream horror things, where now I think Lovecraft is seeing, or the concept of Cthulhu is seeing a real resurgence. And so people have been looking for his heir for a long time. And the two names that I constantly see thrown up, aside from the fact that people are trying to like reimagine the idea of Lovecraft as the sort of you know, as this subgenre of weird fiction, which is sort of like massive cosmic horror type stuff. But the two names that are most commonly thrown out as the le- the carriers of Lovecraft's legacy are Thomas Ligotti and Laird Barron. Both phenomenal writers. Yeah, both of them are phenomenal. Like two of the best. Like if you're into this stuff, you have to be reading them. Uh, and you were saying something. I think that kind of like like Laird Barron. He's a he's a weird fiction writer, and he does some really striking stuff. I think his stuff feels like a weird mix of crime mm-hmm. and and weird fiction that doesn't that lacks the sort of hopelessness and cosmic horror of a lot of Lovecraft's work. And Ligotti, when I'll say that, like Ligotti captures Lovecraft's tone, and he feels sort of like what Lovecraft of today would be. But I think that, like in terms of taking stewardship over the specifics of the Cthulhu mythos, uh, I think that Alan Moore is the best like all the stuff he's done all the stuff that he has created and all the sort of ways he's sort of formed his artistic style his personality his perspectives have really made him the ideal candidate to uh both carry on and refute lovecraft uh what do you think about that yeah i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't disagree uh like i said they have they have a few things in common and uh 
Um, I mean, they both had something else they had in common is just the intense amount of influence they had over a lot of writers. Uh, Lovecraft influenced a lot of fantasy, horror, science fiction writers, uh, not just through his fiction, but through correspondence with them. And uh, Moore went on to inspire an entire generation of comics writers and, uh, and, you know, helped a lot of people along their careers, too. So it's, you know, they're, they're both very influential figures in their own field. Um, but yeah, Moore, Moore's been, you know, we've talked about his kind of de- deconstruction of tropes and his talking about metafictional stuff. Um, you know, and he's really the right person to also talk about Lovecraft and his the, the his relationship with the 20th century in the 21st century, especially. I mean, Lovecraft is weirdly enough more popular than he's ever been. Like uh, Cthulhu is a joke on the internet. Like you have you know Cthulhu for president bumper stickers and Cthulhu plushies and uh, all this other shit. And you know the audience for Lovecraft's work is like hundreds of times bigger than it was during his own lifetime when he had like maybe fifty people who knew who he was from his fiction, which is just crazy to think about. Well, I think it's more like the audience for Lovecraft's ideas, Mm. or not even Lovecraft's ideas. Audience for Lovecraft pastiches are bigger than they've ever been. Like, most people who get super into Lovecraft, like, Lovecraft is kind of an odd read because he's so florid. (laughs) And I, uh, you know, I have a couple of annotated cop. I have the S.T. Joshi annotated ones, and I have the other, the big new annotated one that Alan Moore actually did the the, uh, foreword for. And he often requires that because he's so regional and the language is so florid. Like even for the time, it was archaic. Mm-hmm. So it takes effort to read a Lovecraft story properly. But once you get into it, there's nothing better. And uh, and so I kind of, you know, but anyway, anyway, so I think getting quickly into his stuff, the courtyard follows a FBI agent who feels like he was written to be sort of directly like a modern interpretation of who Lovecraft is, which was sort of a sexless and extraordinarily racist individual who was um, investigating, as I'm trying to recall, it's like a murder or something that might have had to do with the Onclo drug. It's been a while. So, um, Oclo. Oclo, yeah. The murder had to do with the Oclo drugs, but it turns out the Oclo is a language, mm-hmm. like the language of this sort of like cosmic multi- faceted reality thing and the deeper that the agent goes in the more that the aqua language reprograms his own brain like that's what it does it's it's pure knowledge like everything he does is pure like everything that you and when you encounter the cthulhu mythos it's not something you can blast away with shotguns then go back to your like nine to five job it is something that reprograms like if you touch this stuff it destroys and damages your psyche so by the end he sees the reality of the world around him but that reality means that carving up his semi-autistic neighbor makes total sense to him. It is the correct action. It also leads the character to spend, you know, end the story in an insane asylum. Yeah, no, The Courtyard is a crackerjack story. Uh, it was actually originally a short story, and then they transformed it into a comic to sell it for money. Uh, but, you know, they, they did a great job with it. Yeah, um, and then the follow-up piece is called Neonomicon, mm-hmm. and it's it's a riff on of the Necronomicon, the sort of you know core book in the Lovecraft story cycle. It's been like when people talk about Lovecraft, if they're not talking about Cthulhu himself, they're talking about the Necronomicon, and the Neonomicon involves uh, police raids on a lot of the places that um, that love that that uh, the the Aldo Sachs, the agent in the first one, had sort of. Uh, gone to 
and it's the show of force by the police that ultimately doesn't really accomplish anything. Um, the two lead characters are sort of led into this esoteric occult bookstore where they are join in a ritual, and it starts as this orgiastic ritual in a pool where all these characters are fucking each other. Because the other thing too, Alan Moore is not afraid. Like he, one of the theories, and this is something I'm recalling, so correct me if I'm wrong. He says that despite Lovecraft's sort of like repulsion towards sex, there's a lot of phallic and yonic images in the Lovecraft, in the Cthulhu mythos. Sex is an undercurrent of it, but it's usually terrifying and fearful. And so these char- like the two, the two police officers follow this group underneath an occult bookstore. They are forced to sort of participate in an orgy. One, um, as the orgy continues, the group turns on the agents, shoots one of them, and uh, forces the other one to have sex with a deep one, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the deep one winds up impregnating the police officer, and she realizes, much of the same way that Aldo Sachs, and I try, I hope that I got this name right, much of the same way that Aldo Sachs is sort of reprogrammed by his touch with the mythos, she realizes that she's giving birth to a sort of moon child, a new age of the mythos, and she winds up going in the end to visit Sachs in prison, and he realizes that he needs to bow down before her because she's a herald of something grand and terrible of a new age. Um, is that right? Did I nail that about right? Yeah, yeah. Um, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna just say it right now. I fucking hate Neonomicon. Uh, you know, I love Alan Moore and I love Lovecraft, but I, I just absolutely dislike that comic on so many levels. Um, you know, it's just full of rapey, rapey stuff. Um, it's, uh, I don't actually agree with a lot of Moore's conclusions about Lovecraft in the comic. Um, well, can you expand on that? Like, okay, we're, I was going to kick this around later, but we should probably just dive into this right now. Um, Alan Moore has, uh, as he's gone on and it's become such a tentpole, people have sort of studied his work and they kind of, you know, as with a lot of people that sort of have a big body of work, you can spot stuff and a lot of it can really push very strong buttons and they could be it could be it could be kind of like intense for a lot of readers and one of the critiques that I, and I do think it's a fair one is that Alan Moore deals with rape a lot rape is a rape happens in almost every comic book that I can think of that he's done except maybe Swamp Thing if I'm recalling this no 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 like the lead character uh, um, Swamp Thing's girlfriend whose name escapes Abigail. me Abigail doesn't she get assaulted no she is raped by her uh, her uncle, uncle. right there, there's there's rape and sexual violence in um, in almost as far as I know every single Alan Moore story that's always a part of all his narratives maybe in Promethea too I never really got super into that definitely I don't probably in um, no Tom Strong is raped in Tom Strong too so okay yeah there's rape <laughs> and everything um and it's given him a reputation, I think, for just being sort of reckless in his use on rape. Um, what do you think about that? No, I, I definitely agree. Um, I mean, it's a really complex issue. Uh, Moore himself has pointed out when confronted with this that rape is something that happens in real life. And, you know, you can tell stories about people getting shot up, but, you know what, you can't tell a story about someone getting raped. And, like, I, I mean, obviously it's more complex than that, but I don't think he's wrong. Uh, for Neonomicon, though, it really bugged me because I felt like some of the rape in some places were, was being played for laughs. Like some of her relationship with this creature that's just force-fucking her over and over and over 
gets is is played off as kind of humorous and that to me was just a little because parts of it are really fucked up and really horrifying but it's also kind of like ah look she's getting raped um so for me that was just a huge pun not intended turn off just like was not into that thought it was pretty mean-spirited and just fucked up but you know i i don't know um yeah i actually want to throw in on that one of the stories that he did in between the sort of avatar horror things that he's doing now is a collection of erotica called lost girls and lost girls has every single button that you can push that would make anybody uncomfortable sex with underage people sex with relatives um you know forced sex it's just it's it's like i think that i'm always so torn on this stuff i don't think you should read alan moore if this if if subjects of rape gets to you i think that he's he's good but he's not nobody's required reading and he can feel like uh, yeah you're right neonomicon sometimes feels a little reckless about it because i do think that in some ways the scenes between the deep one and the police officer feel like they're meant to be titillating like she is not compliant at first and then as this sort of event keeps happening over and over and over again and as the other cultists die around her um she comes into the mythos she's essentially raped into a higher understanding of the world and just saying that makes my skin crawl um and i think you know i'm sort of torn this like on one hand you have to be like our culture is so weird about sex like all cultures are so weird about sex. And sex comes in a lot of different ways, and some of them are extraordinarily ugly. And I don't think you can really... Oh, God. I, yeah. I, this, this is that thing, because, you know, people always say, oh, you social justice warriors are ruining it. Well, fuck it. I, if I got to side on a camp, I'm going to side on a social justice warrior camp. You, if you're going to talk about this stuff, you got to be thoughtful about it. And I think that the comparison of violence to rape is very different, because violent acts are often, uh, in, especially in horror fiction... They're so far out of the purview of most people because most of us are not going to be hacked to death by a British surgeon to Queen Victoria <laughs> that it's so alien that we're really distant viewers. But sexual assault touches so many. It's touched, you know, in like it's touched a lot of people's lives. Um, and uh, the tenor of a rape scene feels so different and so frightening that I understand or, you know, I try to understand just how damaging and difficult that can be. And I will say it sometimes, it does, you know, on one hand, you can write about whatever the hell you want. And you, and I think that Moore is a talented and thoughtful enough person that he's trying to express something. And I do think that sex has a lot of nuance to it. And rape has a lot of truth or like stories of rape have something. But he's also so unsubtle and unthoughtful. He's from like, when all said and done, despite all his woo-woo, you know, I'm a magic wizard, snake god man. He's an he's an older guy from an older generation. Yeah, and I don't think I think that he I get the sense too. He's someone that's lived in his own head so long that he doesn't really think about. He, he hasn't really been kind of like people like people. I don't know. He like they're they're he does, he's he's very stuck in the Alamore perspective. I don't know how many people he's actually talked to over the last few years that are part of his immediate, like, Northampton, Alan Moore circle. Well, and, I mean, he doesn't go on the internet, so he hears none of the conversations people are having nowadays about these sorts of things. So he's, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just, yeah, he's very out of the loop. He's an old hippie. Like, 
Yeah, you know, and he's, he's an old hippie, and like you know, sometimes they misstep. But that said, he said some stuff about all kind, like about sexual assault that I think is worth saying and worth thinking about. Yeah, and I don't know, man. I guess here's the thing: I say one, like I say, I say one thing that I think, and it feels like I'm defending a guy that could be really reckless in his storytelling. But if I say another thing, that I'm 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 kowtowing to. What can often be, especially since I'm on, like, professionally, I'm on social media all the goddamn time. And I recognize, like, I I work for a company that is good at stirring up rage to make a profit. It is not that hard to do if you enrage somebody with, like, these sort of, like, quick reactionary conversation topics and then throw some ads on there and boom, you made a gajillion dollars. Like, there's, there's a clumsiness to his approach and there's a clumsiness to a lot of the critique but I think the critique is often more valid than like if you're gonna talk about this shit, you're talking about something with some weight and it's gonna have blowbacks. I don't know. I got here's the thing. I can talk myself in circles in both directions. I got nothing. Yeah. Well let's let's continue with discussing uh, his Lovecraft first. Yeah, yeah. So let's move on to the next one. Um Providence, which is actually it, it started what, like half a year ago or something like yeah, that? Yeah, they just came out with issue six, so it's been going for six months. Mm-hmm. So Providence, unlike the first two stories, which was set in um Modern days. Yeah. Which is set in modern days. Providence is set around the era that Lovecraft was actually writing in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And it features a character whose name escapes me right now, who is, in, in some ways, the perfect Lovecraft protagonist, and in other ways, the antithesis of a Lovecraft protagonist. Because? Well, uh, yeah, because he is a gay Jewish man. Uh, you know, and Lovecraft was, of course, both homophobic uh, and anti-Semitic. Despite the fact that he was actually friends with several gay writers and married a Jewish woman, which so, you know, that's that comes with its own complex set of psychoanalyses. We could probably go on forever. But it is interesting that the name of the character slipped your mind because the name is actually really important. The name of the of protagonist in Providence is Robert Black. Uh, now, of course, it's established in the comic that Black is not his real name. His real name is the Jewish word for Black, which I, is, I am slipping my mind on. But Robert Black is a reference to Robert Blake, who was the protagonist of, uh, was it the, the, was the Haunting of the Dark, I think? Yeah. The Lovecraft story. Um, Robert Blake is a reference to the writer Robert Block. Who wrote most famous for writing Psycho, but he also wrote a lot of horror fiction, and he was friends with Lovecraft, and they corresponded each using stories based around each other. Yeah, as I understand it, Block was because um, Block is one of the most pivotal horror writers of the kind of like little before Ray Bradbury's generation, but ultimately of the same generation. Uh, responsible for Psycho, and I get the sense that Lovecraft mentored him, like Lovecraft sort of was a huge influence on so like lovecraft isn't just known for his writing we discussed this in our old podcast which you should really listen to um but he was also a his legacy in terms of mentorship of these artists like from him to block from block to bradbury from bradbury to fucking everybody and from bradbury arguably to king king to uh, yeah you see how this all goes anyway um yeah no i did not catch that but that's because you know the deeper cuts of both more in lovecraft than i do so yeah, if you think about it, he's a fictional character based on another fiction, fictional character who's a writer based on another fictional character 
based on a real life writer. So you've got you've got a lot of different levels of metafiction going on just with the character's name alone. Uh, it also hints, I think, uh, because the, he ends up traveling through different Lovecraft stories, and the name of the story is the name of the comics Providence and Haunter of the Dark takes place in Providence. You suspect that the last story is probably going to be based on or influenced by Hunter of the Dark. And the ending for Robert uh, Blake in that story, spoiler alert, is not a happy one. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, to be a Lovecraft character is ultimately to be doomed. And this one is not cooking along so well. Like right now, it's sort of, it's been really interesting because um, they have taken characters from uh lovecraft's world but they just change their names just a little bit they change their names but if you're kind of savvy on the pastiches you'll know exactly who they are and the notion that love that uh alan moore said in some interviews that he had it made sense that all these characters would probably know each other because they're all in the same region they were all part of the same sort of esoteric orders and it would make a lot of sense that um you know one would know the other would know the other would know the other and it's sort of, you know, if you just, if, if you want to kind of skip the metaphysics of it, Providence is a really enjoyable sort of travelogue through Lovecraft's world. Like, yeah. they go to uh, Miskatonic University, or I forgot what it's called, in this new Saint, new Anselm or something like that. Yeah, um, St. Anselm. St. Anselm. Um, we see the Kitab al-Azif instead of the Necronomicon, which is like just a word or two off from the bad Arabic translation that Lovecraft did back in the day. Um, we pass through the Dunwich Horror. We pass through uh, uh, Innsmouth, the haunted town with the inbred sea monsters. And the other interesting thing about it is that, like, I think because Moore is so talented in terms of knowing how mythologies work, he threads Lovecraft's story in with Christianity, mm-hmm. like, especially in the kind of cult of Innsmouth. Now, a lot of kind of shittier Lovecraft pastiches, uh, of which I have written them, <laughs> uh, they tend to equate the mythos with evil, right? Like, everything is like, oh, well, we're sitting in our little cults, hacking people up, cackling and whatever. And I think that one of the things that Moore does, in a weird way, he's very sympathetic mm-hmm. toward the aims of the supernatural characters, in the, or the, the super, the, the really natural characters in the book. Um, like, the, the greeting that Blake gets in Innsmouth is nothing short of charming. Like, they're everyone's quaint and friendly, with one or two exceptions. But everyone's friendly and open, and he kind of gets a couple of pamphlets, and then he leaves. But, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, secrets are kept. But, um, you know, it's it's what's so interesting about it is that to do Lovecraft correctly, you have to articulate a world where an alien and ultimately hostile mythology is the correct mythology to have. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's been really interesting for me in studying. Because like, I would see that the cult at um, Innsmouth would view their religion tied into Christianity because there are overlaps, you know? Yeah, one of the lines they play off is, I will make you, fi-, you know, from the Bible, I will make you fishers of men. But they, you know, they you have bad English, so it's, I will make you fishes of men. <laughs> yeah, and it's just it's just such a cool... It's, it's a cool understanding of how to blend things in a way that makes it seamless and how to indoctrinate Blake. Because, like, he's very game. He throws away, like, he has, the character has good reason to throw away his old life. His his lover had just committed suicide, and it's all kept very off stage. Um, his job was floundering. His relationship with his parents were was kind of on their skids. 
And so it would make sense for him to try to write this one big book about this esoteric order that sort of influenced a lot of history of town. Plus, Lovecraft, too, was a traveler. Like, he would travel, take bus trips all around the uh, eastern seaboard and, like, subside off of, like, cold canned vegetable soup and shit. Mm-hmm. Um, he, wrote, so, he wrote some really wonderful... I haven't read them, but he apparently wrote some really wonderful travelogues about the east coast of America. Yeah, and so, like, I had to say, like, Providence so far... We're only six issues in, so I'm kind of like... This may be, like, I could do another podcast of this, like, a year down the road and be like, fuck that book, blah, 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 <laughs> bait and switch, blah, 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 blah. But right now, I gotta say, I'm enjoying the crap out of it. Now, you're the deep-cut Lovecraft slash more guy. Where are you at with this? Well, uh, I mean, first of all, uh, I just want to go back to the Innsmouth issue again real quick because uh, reading that dro- that issue drove a lot of things home for me with what Moore's doing with this comic. First of all, the, the inhabitants of Innsmouth in Providence, in the in, with Salem in the comic, uh, they're persecuted by a lot of the, the people in the town. Uh, and there's a, a symbol drawn to ward them off. Now, in the, in, the, in the original stories, it's this thing called the Elder Sign. In the comic, it's a swastika. Mm. And uh, Moore explicitly links the persecution of the fish people to uh, rising Nazism at the time of the persecution of the, the Jewish people in Germany. But what's really freaking fascinating is after i read that uh i went to uh back i picked up one of my lovecraft books and i flipped to the story of the shadow of the in- over innsmouth if you read the first two pages of that story thinking of the holocaust it's kind of mind shattering because what the beginning of that story describes is the government going into this town rounding up particular people putting them in camps where they are never heard from again People complain about this, but it is then oppressed and forgotten. This was written a decade before the Holocaust even started, which is actually kind of mind-fucking to think about. And um, something Moore kind of talked about in uh, one of his interviews about this comic is that, in, to his mind, to a certain extent, Lovecraft, much like Jack the Ripper, kind of created the 20th, 20th century. Lovecraft kind of, in some maybe subtle, maybe, you know, accidental way that artists do kind of saw the 20th century coming i mean it's interesting like he writes in his fiction about the planet yugoth uh which you know at the time they didn't know pluto existed but they speculated it might exist and voila uh they find pluto sometime later uh and he writes from this very materialistic atheistic perspective which is now much more accepted and i think this is one of the reasons that lovecraft is uh more liked nowadays than he was at his time and I think this is part of what Moore's going into with this comic is that he's arguing that uh, Lovecraft kind of predict, predicts the era as it comes and predicts a lot of the horrors that are coming in the 20th century, which is really interesting. Um, but yeah, so, you know, he's got that and he explores a lot of different concepts. Uh, you know, there's the issue that riffs off the talks about the Dunwich horror and he really goes into the way Americans perceive kind of our our have our perceptions of people the back who are the backwards hillbillies like the 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 rural poor you know who are all inbred and it really goes into like incest and inbreeding you know also because it's alan moore <laughs> um but he, he kind of goes into that you know um what else there you know uh you know he's really making an effort to kind of tie a lot of this to the quote-unquote real world and uh, you know, um you know, the, the person who wrote the Kitab, uh the al-Azif stand-in uh in Providence was a real guy 
is a real Arabic writer who, you know, supposedly invented gunpowder and all this other stuff. So it's, he's drawing these connections and uh, he's kind of, it's weird because he's kind of doing a meta Lovecraft thing because every comic ends with segments from Black's journals where he talks about what's going on and writes down his own story ideas. And he kind of comments about his own predicament. You know, at one point it's even like, haha, this kind of reminds me of a horror story about a character who isn't aware of his circumstances, even though he's getting closer and closer. And you're like, dude, look out. Uh-huh. You know, and you're like, dude, this is literally happening to you. <laughs> you know, and, and Black throughout all this, even though all kinds of overtly horrifying things have been happening to him, he's been kind of like pushing it aside or pretending it's not happening or that he misconstrued things. It's very interesting. Uh, Another interesting bit is uh, in issue two, uh, it riffs off the story, The Horror of Red Hook, where uh, one of the things that comes up are, uh, you know, these Iraqi and Syrian refugees in uh, in Brooklyn uh, who were Yazidis. Um, The Yazidi are really fat. It's a really fascinating religion. Essentially, um, it's kind of I really I can't do justice to it, but essentially they worship this peacock angel who is in other religions such as Islam identified with Satan, which is one of the reasons uh, ISIS right now is actually mass murdering these people in really horrifying ways. But it's just kind of these weird one of these weird little coincidences, one of these weird little confluences that pop up between current events and the comic as as it's currently running. And it's just considering Moore's propensity for magic and the importance of coincidence in magic, it's also a very funny thing to come up. I don't know. Yeah, and I think um, in sort of cycling in on this, you've pointed out something that I've been chewing over is that uh, to be innovative in a genre, you have to understand not just the history of the genre, which was drilled into me a lot in my MFA, like to write good horror fiction, you have to know good horror fiction, but you also have to know what this horror fiction means or symbolizes to the world around you. You need to know its place in history. You need to know its significance to the cultural psyche in the world around you. You know, like to say that, you know, Jack the Ripper presaged World War Two, or, you know, uh, H.P. Lovecraft brought about sort of the new nihilism of the 20th century. Like, I think that that's what you have to, like, you can, any idiot can write a story about, you know, creepy old books and fucked up families and tentacle monsters and people seeing a weird-ass statue and going mad or staring at the skies and the stars move and they form an eyeball and they say, you're crazy, and they go crazy or whatever. It's easy to harp on the tropes, but to really understand a writer and artist you have to understand like you have to have a really holistic view to do good art like there there i guess there are theories that art exists in a vacuum and the more i study different styles of art the less i am sympathetic to it like i think an artist is a reflection of uh, of who the art the creator is i think it's a a reflection of times and i think it's a reflection of you know we're not nothing stands on its own we're all interconnected into one another and in in when in, when it comes to horror it means that we're all pushing those buttons like we're all pushing cultural buttons that are just so easy to to wound us all with okay so um kind of on that note we're running a little low on time but i think that one of the predominant mythologies new mythologies of today is the harry potter books the harry potter world and uh, this is less horror, but I kind of just in tying it to the occult, the mythic, the sort of the rot of an age. Alan Moore said that he finds the Potter stories to be really nihilistic, really violent. And they are, God, like the, the Ministry of Magic, it's such a, 
oppressive Orwellian World War II, you know, war mentality kind of a thing. And the Potter stories are grim. They're really, really grim. And he studies them. You know, it's not conventionally a horror book, though it has horror elements to it. But um, the last thing that I want to touch on is sort of the ultimate conclusion to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series, which is Aleister Crowley's uh, dream of a moon child coming to life in the form of Harry Potter. Uh, (laughs) Help me out with this. Yeah, so um, Aleister Crowley, who we mentioned earlier, um, one of his big ideas was the creation of something called a moon child, which is... Uh, a little tricky to explain simply, but basically you're making your own Antichrist at home. Um, you know, you would basically be a spirit put into human flesh. Uh, you would impregnate a woman and then fill her with lunar energies and you would produce like a magic baby. Uh, this is one of the projects he was working on. He wrote a novel based around this concept called Moonchild. It's god-awful, but it's a good explanation to kind of the ideas he's looking at. And it's a, it's a fun parody of a lot of occultists at the time. He poked a lot of fun at, like, the guy who who, who created the, the uh, writer weight tarot deck and a lot of other stuff. But essentially, um, in League of Ex- Extraordinary Gentlemen's Century, uh, Alan Moore creates, uh, has a character named Aller, Oliver Haddo, who's a character from uh, Somerset Mons, the magician, who is based on Aleister Crowley, uh, trying to create a moon child. And uh, he tries to do this through the course of a century, constantly failing. You know, some attempts are things like Rosemary's Baby. Mm. And uh, the Oliver Haddo character is constantly reincarnating himself through the bodies of his... Uh, his cultists and followers so you know so he's uh you know the witch in uh the the guy in uh rosemary's baby he comes back as uh, a bunch of other characters uh including voldemort at one point and uh his ultimate final creation is harry potter which is viewed as a failure just not that great an antichrist he's a whiny drug addicted you know douchey, self-entitled little shitbag. Basically, Alan Moore's view of kids today. Rah, 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 rah. Um, so, it's, yeah. Yeah, don't, don't take it as like a... I, I quite like the Harry Potter stories. So, you know, grain of salt it, but it is, it is some interesting ideas. Yeah, so essentially, uh, the, I mean, there, there's some horror stuff there. There's definitely, you know, kind of in the comic, it's implied that after the events of uh, Harry Potter ignoring the the conclusion that uh, J.K. Rowling writes, Harry goes, finds out what he really is, goes back to uh, Hogwarts and shoots up the school. Well, the school was all illusory. It was, you know, it was created to trap him or to mold him because the school is created on a type of Victorian or like a type of British education that really, as far as I can tell, doesn't really exist anymore, you know? And the whole thing is so kind of overwrought and corny and like, and more being the cranky old man that he is, he takes some pretty cheap shots on J.K. Rowling's um, the writing style and sort of construction of a world. But um, it is sort of, uh, you know, for what he's trying to say, for capturing a sort of spirit of the age, he did a pretty, like, it's, it's worth reading. It's worth a study. And I do kind of like the fact that the thing that ultimately undoes Harry Potter is fucking uh, Mary Poppins. Yes, Mary Poppins shows up and slaughters him. It's amazing. Although, the, my only complaint is it's very deus ex machina, and you're like, well, why didn't she come in from the beginning, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's but still that's just... League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Like, yeah. a bunch of references happen. Nothing has any tie to anything else. Every now and again, there's a really good story, yeah. and that's that's it. And Kevin O'Neill's art is 
I fucking love it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's phenomenal. Uh, anyway, so I guess, unless you got anything else, we're going to kind of wind it down here. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we could probably spend several podcasts talking about a single work of Alan Moore stuff just because it's so complex and detailed, and he's just the sort of writer who packs, like, ten things into every every panel, so... Yeah. Um, so anyway, I kind of want to do, uh, you know, I hope we sort of touched on what made him such a powerful and seminal work of uh, creativity and sort of what I, as a horror fan, took away from key moments in specific works of his. Uh, I, You know, th- what do I recommend? This is usually the part where I recommend stuff. Obviously, I recommend Swamp Thing in terms of like, I think most horror fans are going to get into it uh, the quickest. I like... You know, I do like Watchmen, but I have kind of a background in it. And I do think it's kind of tied into a specific era. Um, let's see, what else? I'm really, like, I think if you want to do a really good superhero pastiche, I love Tom Strong because it feels Silver Agey, but it's so joyful and goony. Like, Tom Strong is one of my favorite things of all time, period. Uh, From Hell, I think, From Hell requires patience. Like, I have it on my Comixology app, and I just can't read because you have to, like, flip back and forward in different sections. You require the physical book of it, and it's, it, it's, it's, it is a work that would require, like, like, I, I always plan to have it, like, a nice copy of it when I have my study that's, like, full of mahogany, <laughs> wood, and furniture, the and the pipe, and just, like, like my, my grandpa's old study. Um uh, so I like that one a lot. V for Vendetta is really fascinating, especially since the way that Americans took it, because the movie is so... It's such a Thatcherite England story, and we really made it about the war and terror, and sometimes, like, the seams show in the way that they Frankenstein one idea to the other, um, and God knows Anonymous really took that and ran with it. Oh, Jesus. Um, let's see. Obviously, you know, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, it's like, if you're, if you're a classic literature geek, which I... I mean, I like Sherlock Holmes and stuff. It's great for the references, and when the stories make sense, they're wonderful. Like, his take on James Bond, I think, is seminal. Yeah. Uh, he portrays Bond as this sort of government thug, which is less the origin of the character, more what he's become, especially kind of in the Daniel Craig era. Um, yeah, And obviously, The Killing Joke, I think, if you want to be, like, really traditional in terms of, like, your cloud. Like, that's a great entryway if you're going from superheroes to the rest of his work. So... Uh, you know, he's got a lot of alkalites. Like, Grant Morrison's done some interesting stuff. Um, and they're very much like... Grant Morrison's clearly a devotee of Alan Moore. Warren Ellis is pretty exciting. Neil Gaiman. Neil, Neil Gaiman. They're at contemporaries, and they riff off each other. Like, stories from the Sandman continue. Stories from the Swamp Thing. Uh, that's pretty much it. You're the you're Neil Ga- or you're the uh, Alan Moore guy. I mean, I, I those are all fantastic recommendations. Really, the, aside from maybe Neonomicon, there's not much you can go wrong with it. And not everyone would agree with me that Neonomicon is not worth reading. I think it's worth reading. Yeah, Joe, for example. But uh, I also, so many caveats. It really, all that rapey shit is pretty. <laughs> Yeah, um, I you know um, I will just throw in I agree with Swamp Thing in particular. Uh, I I think for one thing, not enough people recommend that. I only started reading Swamp Thing about two years ago when it knocked my socks off. I was like, holy shit! Why are not more why aren't more people talking about this? Because it's incredible. Um, and uh, I also highly recommend his novel Voice of the Fire. Uh, not enough people read it. Uh, it's really freaking great. Uh, it's not a comic book. But the writing is spectacular, and it's just him talking about his hometown of Northampton through uh, the course of about 5,000 years and the history involved. And it's just really, really touching, really, really horrific, and really, really beautiful. Um, Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think. 
Uh, I'm all, Providence is also really great right now. If you love Lovecraft, you should pick it up. I'm as Joe mentioned. I'm currently blogging every issue. Uh, we'll put the link to the blog uh, in the CreatureCast website, and uh, if you want to follow along at home, uh, you can do that. There are actually a lot of people doing annotations on uh, Providence, but uh, there's... But fuck all them, watch yeah. ours. But I, I tried to put a little sass and attitude and commentary in mine, uh, so yeah, I hope you check it out. Yeah, oh, and you know what? Uh, I should mention Promethea. Like, Promethea is easily understood as Wonder Woman and sort of like the Ur mythology of Wonder Woman, and then, like... It, some a lot of it's really impenetrable, but like the stuff that I could glom onto, I really enjoyed. So, mm-hmm. plus J. H. Williams the Third's art is just fucking killer. beautiful. Yeah, killer. Uh, anyway, I think that's it. So you know, once again, thank you, David, so much for uh, letting me hang out at your house, eat your mac and cheese, <laughs> drink your beers, and uh, and uh, record a show. Yeah, always it's a always, pleasure. Always a pleasure. All right. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, Christmas. Christmas happens. I'm going to be running around for the holidays, but we're trying to be back on the reg. I know we're doing one on Sweeney Todd coming up soon. And, uh, you know, everyone have a happy holidays. Enjoy your, you know, enjoy the scares that you can find in this most merry season. Get through it. Enjoy. Ciao, Bella. Creature Cast, a darkly tinted look at the magical, the mysterious, and the macabre.